95.7 Ben FM presents Her Story with Kathy Romano. Good morning and welcome to Her Story. I'm your host, Kathy Romano. After growing up on Manhattan's Upper West Side, a glamorous career in the radio industry in Hollywood and a stint here in Philadelphia at WMMR, today's guest revealed some dark secrets of her life. In her recently released book, A Dark Force, 20 Years with a Covert Narcissist, Erin Riley talks about being an emotionally neglected child, being married to a narcissist, and hiding the painful truth for so long. Erin's memoir recounts her self-discovery through a series of life Life's traumas and tragedies. She's joining me today to share her story. Hi, Erin. Hi, Kathy. Thank you so much for having me on today. Oh, thank you so much for coming on. I'm excited to talk to you about your book. So I do this show every Sunday morning here on Ben FM, but I've been on WMMR since 2003, and you once worked there for a while. I actually worked at WMMR for a little over nine years. It's a great run, and we had a great time. It was from 1983 to 1991 when we had the morning zoo and a lot of crazy stuff was going on. The ratings were really good, and we had a wonderful time. I was music director and assistant program director at the time. So you worked uh, with John DeBella, Pierre, all of those guys? Yeah, Joe Bonadonna, Bubba John Stevens, Michael Tierson, Lynn Kratz, Cindy Drew, a lot of people who are still coming and going from the station are still sort of peripherally involved. But, you know, the legendary DJs that were there at the time, you know, we just had a wonderful time. And, of course, as you know, Pierre is still there so for 40-plus years. So before that, you grew up in Manhattan. That is true. I was born in 1959, and I was raised on the Upper West Side of Manhattan by two parents that were sort of peripherally in the entertainment business. My father was an actor, albeit a kind of like a bit part soap opera commercial actor, not a famous actor. And my mother was a fashion model, but my mom was a real breadwinner in the family. And I don't think it was that common back in the early 60s to have both of your parents working. So I ended up growing up in New York City, almost like a latchkey kid, where I was fully responsible for myself, coming and going, taking the bus, taking a subway, six, seven years old. It was a lot safer then, but I feel as though it created sort of a mindset for me that created a lot of hypervigilance, fight, flight, and survival ability growing up in Manhattan like that. So my childhood was, I call it like a madman scene. You know, it just all looks black and white to me. Everybody has a drink and a cigarette and a fancy <laughs> outfit on. You know, this looks like a Mad Men episode in my in my memory. Uh, but I was somewhat of a neglected child, and I had a younger brother. We we're both pretty neglected. Parents were busy working, and you know, just kind of left to raise ourselves and figure it out. And I just want to say, when when you're left to figure it out, and you're a child, guess what you do? Wrong almost all the time. <laughs> People really need good parents. (laughs) Well, okay. so then at the age of 19, you left New York and headed out to Hollywood. And that's where your whole radio career started. Yes, that's true. Uh, A lot of things went down in my family. As I mentioned, my parents were kind of checked out. My father was alcoholic. My mother was not a warm and nurturing mom. A lot of bad things happened. My father fell. There were brain surgeries. There was a divorce. There was a lot of trauma that my brother and I experienced. So I just had to get out. I just had to get away. Not only had I experienced a whole lot of familial trauma, but I had had other bad things happen to me. I'd gained almost 70 pounds. It was just a terrible time in my late teen years. So I just thought to myself, how far away can I get? So I moved from, at the time I was in central New Jersey, in Lambertville, I moved to Los Angeles. 
So, yep, I'm 19 years old. I quit college. I just said, I just got to get as far away as I possibly can. And I took a bus, Greyhound bus, down to Los Angeles, and uh, that was a pretty scary experience. Uh, But I was very fortunate to have a friend of a friend get me a little hourly job to get me started. So I got a little apartment in Hollywood in a really dangerous area. It was only $235 a month. And I worked my little job, a little billing, you know, a little billing clerk job at a photo lab. And just by happenstance, I met a big rock radio DJ. He was working in Los Angeles radio, and he was very well known. He'd been a record producer. And we sort of met because he had this interest in photography, and we really hit it off and started dating. So I started going to work with him at the radio station. And, and you know, Kathy, you've worked in radio your whole career. A lot of breaking into radio back in the day was just, Hanging around. Hanging right? out. Just, yeah. yeah. Like, you just stay at the radio station night and day until somebody doesn't show up, and that's how you get in. That's how you break into the business. So I don't know if it's quite that way any longer, but that's kind of how it worked for me. So I was working. I was actually just, like, hanging out and, uh, you know, practicing a little bit in the production room, making some demo tapes. And the program director put me on in the middle of the night one night, said, well, guy's not showing up, so you, 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 go over there. You do it. And that began uh, at least 20, 25 years that I worked in radio. So I worked in Los Angeles in radio at K-Rock, Rock of the 80s. That's really where I got my big chance there. And then I, was, uh, I moved to Santa Barbara, and I worked at a wonderful station called K-Tide in Santa Barbara. Where we could look out the window and see the ocean from the control studio. So that was beautiful. And it was right after that, right, 1983, that I sort of targeted WMMR. And at the time, the program director was the famous Charlie Kendall, whose voice probably still shows up from time to time. He's the guy that says, Bill Of course. (laughs) In fact, I just want to mention real quick before I forget, he's actually voicing his own audio, his own lines in my audio book. So I was able to get Charlie Kendall to be the voice uh, of himself in my audio book. Oh, cool. He got me a job. I was going to be a DJ there, but some things just didn't work out. I was very young, only 23, and he offered me the music director gig. And so I took it. I didn't know what I was doing, but what a ride that was, you know, to be at a wonderful station like WMMR and in a wonderful market that was so into music in the 80s, choosing the songs and working with the artists and managers and record company representatives and seeing concerts and dealing with listeners and giveaways and the promotion department. It was just the most exciting and fun time for a young woman. I'm in my 20s and that was my life. I was like a rock and roll princess. So my career was just skyrocketing. But my personal life somehow it was like going down down the drain. It was an interesting dichotomy, you know, successful career and difficulty in the personal interpersonal relationship. Now, in your book, you talk about the glamour behind it all, behind the radio industry. Just talk a little bit about what that means. There was a lot of money going around at that time. And let me see if I can explain it so your listeners can understand that, you know, obviously record companies and artists make money when people buy records, right? And in the 80s, People were buying a lot of CDs. They had w, they had MTV, so there were videos that were helping to promote the bands, and there were big budgets, and there was lots of you know dinners out and junkets and plane rides and backstages and limousines and fancy dinners and stuff like that. There was just a lot of money going around, and so yeah, I was had the privilege of 
going out to these fancy restaurants and getting a limo to go up to New York to see some famous rock star to go hang out with them afterwards. I mean, yeah, that's pretty darn glamorous. It may not be real. <laughs> it's kind of not a, it's sort of surreal and not real, but there was a lot of money at that time. So some things changed in the music business that I think people are probably pretty aware of. Once music became digital, people were able to put it online and share it and so it was no longer able to be monetized in the same way so suddenly the budgets went down and that meant a lot of those glamorous parties and limos and stuff started to shrink as well i left radio in 1996 just after i left wmr i went to work at wxpn another good philadelphia radio station that i'm proud to say i worked at for several years and and booked a lot of shows for them and did some on-air stuff but yeah, there's a lot of glamour. There's even more glamour when I got to work for the Grammys. That was ridiculous. Everywhere you go, there's like ice sculptures and, you know, champagne and lavish parties with bands. I'm sure all the rock stars you were hanging out with as well. Well, yeah, it was sort of the scene for like everybody. You know, I remember one night being in New York City, traveling around in a limousine with Donny Osmond. And now I know Donny Osmond is not a rock star, but probably there are people listening to your show. Kathy, that still have a crush on Donny Osmond. Oh, of course. <laughs> right? He was, he was a big deal for us older ladies, you know, back then. And, uh, and it was just crazy because I'm riding around New York City drinking champagne with a couple of guys and, you know, from record companies with Donny Osmond, who doesn't drink, right? So he's just making fun of everybody all night for drinking and stuff. But I just think to myself, this is such a surreal kind of thing that's happening. I'm like riding around New York with Donny Osmond and many other things like that. So I got to meet all of my favorite rock stars and really developed a close friendship with people like Steven Tyler, John Bon Jovi. Obviously, we broke John Bon Jovi big in Philadelphia, and so he was always bringing us demo tapes early. It was just a really exciting time in music. There was great music happening, and there was a lot of energy behind sharing music. Did you create any lasting friendships or relationships through the industry? Yeah, I guess so. You know, I'm still in touch with people. One of the bands I love to go see, and I always go backstage and hang out with because they crack me up all the time, is Cheap Trick. There are some people I just love. Everybody in that band, they're just funny and smart and kind and kind of sarcastic and fun to hang with. So, yeah, I'll still go to shows like that and see them. And I'll go backstage for Aerosmith if they're in town and say hi. But it's not like we chit-chat. You know, it's not like Stephen texts me and we chit-chat all the time or anything like that. But when he's touring, I'll go, you know, call somebody and see if I can come and say hi, get a hug and go over some old memories and stuff. Yeah. Well, you know, I asked that because you mentioned you were in the midst of this great radio career and all the glamour behind it, but your personal life was not so great. And, you know, sometimes when you're in that moment and you know, you think everything's great, but it's like, is any of this real? Are any of these people really my friends? Am I creating real relationships? That's why I asked that question. But talk yeah. about, so talk about the other side of all of this then was your personal life and what was happening. Well, let me just go back and address. It's not real. And that's something that can also fake you out. And I think that speaks to what we're going to speak about next, which is narcissism. So when you meet a person who has real clinical narcissism, they are not what they appear to be. They are presenting a false self. So uh, I was easily taken. Because I was this, we take it back a step, this latchkey kid without involved parents, I think I was one 
desperate for a family, desperate for love and attention. And I was getting the attention by being the music director of WMMR. But like you said, it's not real. It's about they really need airplay on the radio station. So they're being nice to me because they want airplay on the radio station, not because they like me. Right. And that doesn't mean they don't like me. It just means that that's their priority. That's why they're talking to me, not because I'm such a cool chick. So that all said, yes, it is a very confusing kind of a thing when you're having a successful career and you're not having a successful personal life. I had a lot of friends, so I'm talking more so about romantic relationships. But it all kind of goes together. You know, there's a lot of misogyny in the music business and a lot of women have to really struggle to keep their head above water and keep the respect that they've earned and deserve. It's always kind of an uphill struggle for women, I think, in a male-oriented business of patriarchy like the music business. So I think I was, I felt like I had something to prove. Maybe I felt like I needed to be listened to, heard, considered, the things I didn't receive from my parents. And I was getting that as music director. You know, I'm like picking a song and they think, oh, Erin's picking the good song. So she must be good at this. And that really helped my self-esteem and my ego. But in reality, deep down inside me, something was wrong. You know, I didn't know who I was. I didn't know how to set boundaries with people. I didn't know how to stand up for myself. You know, there were a lot of things I didn't really learn. And I was also very naive to think that everyone thinks as I do. Very empathetic towards others. I'm kind and consider others' feelings and stuff. And I thought everybody was like that. I thought, you know, there's serial killers, and then there's the rest of us, right? The rest of us, we're just doing our best. And because we're human, we're flawed, and we make mistakes, or we tell a white lie. But our intentions are good. And I'm here to tell you, Kathy, I have learned that that's not true. There are people in the world that do not have your best interests in mind right from the get-go. And they think transactionally. And those people may be on the spectrum of narcissism. And they can certainly create a lot of damage if you, can, if you are taken in by a person that is narcissistic. So uh, in my book, I'm, I'm hopefully trying to explain to people what it looks like in a real-life setting to be in a relationship with a narcissist because it's very confusing. They use intermittent reinforcement. Some days they're good. Some days they're bad. They love bomb you, tell you're the greatest thing in the world, and then they steal from you or lie to you or cheat on you or something. And it's very confusing. It's the same cycle of abuse as being in a physically bad relationship where they idealize you and then you're devalued and then they toss you off, you know, and then they bring you flowers. I'll never do it again. Well, it's the same in an emotional relationship, but it's very, very confusing. I wrote the book to help process the experience for myself, but also to share the traits and the qualities and behaviors of narcissists so other people can learn to recognize the early warning signs of narcissists coming toward you and learn to set that boundary and stay away. Explain exactly what a narcissist is, because it's an actual mental disorder, correct? Narcissism is an actual mental disorder. You are absolutely right. It's just like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder or whatnot. The problem with diagnosing narcissism is that there's no definitive blood test or brain scan for it. So you can only diagnose or recognize narcissism by the behaviors 
of the individual. There are different schools of thought. People think maybe it happens to people in utero. Maybe there is some kind of a birth defect that creates the amygdala in their brain doesn't grow properly, and that is where your empathy center is. Or perhaps it's an early caregiver neglect where, say, a baby is born and the caregiver, be it mommy, daddy, grandma, whoever is the person that takes care of the baby, that baby comes out and they are just a blob. They know nothing and they are downloading all the information. And the most important thing they need to learn is how do I get my needs met, right? If I cry, does somebody come and bring me food or if I'm wet? Come change my diaper. Well, if you don't have a caregiver that addresses and meets your needs as a baby, you have to learn other ways to get your needs met, right? And they could be more coercive than just crying and expecting that somebody comes to get you. So they develop these tactics. So yes, it is definitely a disorder, but it's also a lot like autism. It exists on a spectrum. Some people have narcissistic traits that they can use when they're in an argument with somebody, something like triangulation or blame shifting or projecting upon them. But then there are people that absolutely are at such a disordered level, they could dissociate and be sociopathic and harm you physically. It could happen. So like I said, it exists on a spectrum and it always starts out where they're what they call love bombing you and mirroring you and trying to match up with everything. So a narcissist will identify a person they think is a good target, somebody that has resources for them and maybe gullible and they have some emptiness in themselves and that would be me. So I may look like my career is often flying and I'm doing great, but what emptiness is inside of me is the family I never had. And that's what a narcissist can kind of detect in a person than when they set about to, uh, you know, to target and then take advantage of uh, a person. It's all transactional. None of this is uh, real emotion that you're seeing from a narcissist until the very end. At the very end, you're going to see the real narcissist. So don't let it get there. What do you see at the end? Backstagecountry.com, your online home for all things country music. Country music has so many generous artists who always seem to jump in to help those in need. We're spotlighting five who lead by example and lend a helping hand to charitable causes. See who made our list when you text GIVE to 45911. Text GIVE to 45911 and read all about it right now on BackstageCountry.com. Terrifying, as if you're seeing your partner turn into a werewolf, like you don't even know what's happening when they've decided that they're moving on. So people call this supply, you know, that a narcissist needs supply. And because they don't have the same kind of emotional connections that us people that have empathy have, they don't really care that much, but they still have needs. They want you to validate them, make them feel good about themselves. You're around, they might trick you or punish you or uh, hide your phone. They do things like they're like poltergeists sometimes just to control you and watch you go crazy. And then they look at you like, geez, you know, it's crazy. The gaslighting, well, they'll tell you that never happened. I never said that. They feel powerful when that happens. So at some point, most people start to figure it out. could take you six months. For me, I'm a little slow. It took me 18 years to figure out that my partner, my husband of 20 years, was gaming me and never loved me, stealing, cheating, lying, just all those things. 
and I didn't know until the very end. But at the very end, we were supposed to move to Panama together and retire. We built a beautiful home overlooking the Caribbean, and that's what we were going to do. And I was afraid to go. I was afraid to go so far away and be isolated with them because that's another thing a narcissist will do. They will badmouth your friends and family and try and separate you from a support system so that they can even further punish you. They're projecting their inner misery upon another person. So if I had gone to Panama with him and been isolated, I don't know what could have happened. Uh, So basically, I I lost everything. I lost everything I'd ever owned, was sent down to Panama in a shipping container. I lost the house, the cash, the husband, and it's all gone. And next thing you know, five minutes later, there's another girl living there in my retirement home that I built for eight years. And I have to guess, listen, I have to guess she was around for a long time, maybe. Who knows? Like I said, they really are very good at disguising what's going on. So you have to learn to trust your feelings. You will always feel it when someone is lying to you. Just don't use your brain to override your feelings. That's that's my message to people is learn to trust your gut. Learn to put yourself first and love yourself so you can stay safe from predators because it's the truth. There are people out there in the world that you can't see <laughs> from the outside. Like, you don't see their co- that they're coming. And those people are there to take advantage of you and her too. They think that you're doing the same thing. They really think that it's a kind of a kill or be killed situation where, well, let me see what I can get from this person. And while I disguise, you know, that I'm really thinking that way. Uh, and they just cause a lot of damage in their wake. So be careful, people. Trust your gut. Put yourself first. Slow down and check in with yourself. So you can check in with how you feel around a person because uh, everybody has an internal compass. Everybody has an internal radar system. Just don't override it because your brain is real tricky. I'm talking with Erin Riley, the author of A Dark Force, 20 Years with a Covert Narcissist. It's available now. Uh, Where can people get your book? Pretty much anywhere, Kathy. It's available on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com. You could go to a bookstore and order it. It's on my website, too. So I have a darkforce.com where you can get an autographed copy. And I also sell little voodoo dolls because who doesn't need a little voodoo doll every now and then, right? <laughs> <laughs> if people buy your book, what can they expect when reading it? I hope that the people who read it uh, realize that there is hope and redemption after a really damaging relationship like this and a better connection to yourself. And I tried to present the story as though, you know, this is my personal story. So you can see what this narcissistic relationship, my husband was a covert narcissist, very under the radar, looks like in a real life setting. But what I try to do throughout is to teach people the traits, the tactics they use and how it comes on. So they may recognize these behaviors and traits in their own relationships. Because if you're in a relationship right now and you're confused and you don't know what's going on and you can't get a straight answer and, you know, nothing, you can't get from point A to point B with your partner, but you can't figure it out, please read A Dark Force because I hope this will illuminate and shed a light on some of this kind of behavior so you can recognize it before something terrible happens to you, like you get rocked or hurt by someone. Do you know if you read your book? 
I don't know. Let me tell you something about a covert narcissist. When they discard you, they disappear forever, and you will never hear from them again. It's like you've been erased. So my husband of 20 years left to go to Panama, and I've really never heard from him again. He didn't say goodbye to his stepson. You just get erased. You're done. Next moving on. I do know that his brother started following my Instagram last June, almost a year ago. <laughs> so what that says to me is that I'm being stalked, that they're paying attention to me and they're searching me online. So that's a little disconcerting, but I changed all the names and changed all the defining characteristics and places we lived. I even changed the name of the dog. I'm not out here to hurt him. I'm out here to warn others. I don't know if he read it. Maybe. He might have. And I also wanted to ask you, you did some work in the area at a children's music school, and then you ended up doing a TEDx talk about your work with children. What was that experience like? Well, that was marvelous. That actually was my own school. It's called Rock and Roll After School. I started it. It was in Phoenixville, and then I moved the school to a much larger location in Collegeville in the Philadelphia suburbs. And, uh, and we taught kids in band. So we would teach kids music lessons and, you know, guitar, bass, drums, the basic pop and rock instruments, keyboards and vocals and stuff, and not so much band instruments. You know, more like the rock and roll instruments. But then they could join our band program, and we would have coaches help them help them facilitate writing their own songs. So these kids were 7 to 18 years old, and if you go on YouTube, you can find about a 1,000 videos of original songs that were written and performed by kids ages 7 to 18. So the little 7-year-olds, they might write songs about you know, bullies at the locker in school or their favorite puppy or teddy bear. But by the time these kids are 13, they're writing about politics and, like, world issues and stuff. And they're really developing the ability to speak to each other and to negotiate and to stand up for themselves. So that was the goal of that. And uh, because this program was so successful and so well-loved by the kids that were participating, we had over a couple thousand kids doing this over the years that we did it, I was invited to do a TEDx talk about rock and roll after school and it was called give a kid an instrument not a device because i saw you know kids just disappearing behind a screen and not knowing really how to interact with other people and i thought that was really important that they learned how to do that and it was a great time so yeah thank you it's an honor thanks for bringing that up is your school still opened no i sold it when we were going to go to panama and i sold it to a gentleman and uh, he went out of business after about, I don't know, nine months. Oh. So I know. I ran it for a little over 10 years, though. So the good part of that story is that my drum instructor at the time, he had a, his parents had a dance school, and so they just opened a wing of the music school in part of the dance school. So all of my teachers got to keep their jobs, and all of the kids that wanted to keep taking lessons got to stay. So it still exists. It's called the Music Depot, and it's in Collegeville. How long have you been apart from your ex-husband? Uh, it's actually getting longer and longer. It's shocking now. I think it's six years. Like, he left in May of 2018 to move down to Panama, and I was supposed to follow him there, but I was really just too afraid to do it. Just didn't want to be isolated, and just things had escalated with him. And so that's when that happened, and he kept trying to get me to come down there. They call that hoovering in narcissistic phrases, like a hoover vacuum, trying to get you to come back. And I guess he at some point gave up and then decided to trade me in for the other girl and filed for divorce. And when was that? I think that was uh, December of 2018. And I was legally divorced as of July of 2019. 
So that's it. The only other thing that happened was in 2020, I actually got somebody in the middle of the pandemic, somebody that lives down there in Panama, to help me get my things out of the house. So not everything, but I got some of my things out. I couldn't get them shipped back here, but I sold everything down in Panama and used the $5,000 worth of proceeds to feed indigenous families that were starving down there because of the pandemic. You know, I was able to turn lemons into a little bit of lemonade and uh, and life's a lot better now. You know, I can see things more clearly. The book really helped to uh, me connect the dots, you know, of my young life to what I was willing to tolerate as an adult. You know, my mom would stonewall me and ignore me when I needed her attention. And so that's how I learned how to tolerate that and accept that from my adult male relationships and my marriages. Things are different now. I think everybody should write a book, honestly. everybody. Not everybody should release a book, but everybody should write one because you're going to learn a lot about yourself if you do. So you're doing well then now. BackstageCountry.com, your online home for all things country music. Country music has so many generous artists who always seem to jump in to help those in need. We're spotlighting five who lead by example and lend a helping hand to charitable causes. See who made our list when you text GIVE to 45911. Text GIVE to 45911 and read all about it right now on BackstageCountry.com. I'm doing very well. I'm doing better than I ever have. So thanks for saying that. Yeah, it really is. It's it's great to figure stuff out. You know, I felt like I just couldn't figure out why things didn't work in my life. I couldn't figure it out. But now I, I really feel, you know, like I completed the circle, that journey to self. I ran away to California when I was 19 to find myself, but apparently I wasn't there. And there's a little line in the book at the end that I kind of paraphrase from The Wizard of Oz. Uh, you've always had the power, my dear. You've just had to learn it for yourself. It's never as far as your own backyard, right? It's all in you. We can sit there and talk about the narcissist all day and night, but the real issue is to look internally and learn about yourself. Well, Aaron, thank you so much for sharing your story with me this morning. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity. It's a pleasure to speak with you and a pleasure to meet you, Kathy. Are you doing any book signings in the area? I, You know, I will be. There's a local artist, this guy named John Fay, who just put out his memoir. He and I are going to do one together. So keep your eye on adarkforest.com. We're going to do a book signing, a little bit of a musical event as well. And I'm also available for book clubs. I do that a lot as well, too, where I'll do Zoom meetings with people to talk about the book. Uh, I have TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, you know, everything. And a whole community of people who are survivors and people who are learning about narcissism. It's been a great way to connect up with other people because you can feel very alone in these types of relationships. You're very confused. You're very alone. There's a lot of shame about it and confusion. So if we can share and we can spread the word, we can support each other. John Fay, the musician? Yeah, John Fay, the musician. He just wrote his own memoir. It's called Yin and Yang of It All. And he has an event with Ike and the Caulfields and all of his bands and whatnot. And then after that, he and I have been talking about doing an event together because we're two local music people that put out memoirs at the same time. Well, that's great. And you said if you do this, the information will be on your website. Yeah, it will definitely be on my website at darkforce.com. So, uh, yeah, just getting into doing some of those things. I've been doing a lot of stuff online to promote the book. But now that the weather is getting nice, I'm going to do some book fairs. I'll be up at the Flemington Book Fair over Memorial Day weekend and doing a discussion at the library here in King of Prussia. So a uh, little bit here and there. So, yeah, just uh, 
promoting a book is so interesting because you meet so many different people. I had somebody order the book over my website this past weekend, and she wanted her inscription to say, Kathy, you can do this. And I thought, oh, man, this girl wants to open my book and, and have the strength from my book to do what she maybe needs to do, which might be leave. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. So we're supporting each other. Life is, life is hard, you know, and for us people that care about others, I think it's really important that we all lift each other up, especially as women. You know, and I don't want to say there aren't female narcissists. They most certainly are. But my perspective is from a woman's perspective. So I'm here to lift up other women. Yeah, absolutely. You're right, though. Life is hard. And people who look around and think everybody else has it easy, you don't know. You know, like you said, you had this glamorous life, but really behind closed doors, you were dealing with a narcissist and unhappy. That's absolutely true, Kathy. And that's another thing, you know, when they tell you, you don't know what the person's life is like or what they're dealing with or what their struggles are. It's all so true. I feel very seen and heard now because I pretty much exposed my whole life to the world. But yes, it was frustrating to me that people would say, well, you're so lucky. You met all those rock stars. Yeah, but that's not real. The real part of my life is not happy, but it is now. And you can give yourself, you know what, it's all giving it to yourself, right? That's it. It's all, it's all about self-love. I know they say that, but until you really feel it and really understand it, it's just a phrase. Yeah. I thought I loved myself. I really did. I thought, well, I, I love myself. I'm proud of myself. But I guess I tolerated poor behavior. So that's really, you're sort of like confusing your body. Your body's going, yeah, but you're taking on all this terrible stress and this bad treatment. You really have to walk the walk. You can't just say, I love myself. You have to actually stand up for yourself as well, too. Well, Erin, thanks again for sharing your story with me. Yeah, thank you so much, Kathy. You have a wonderful afternoon, and thank you for listening, everyone. For more information about Erin or to buy her book, you can go to adarkforce.com. It's also available on Amazon, Goodreads, Barnes & Noble, and all places where books are sold. And if you missed any part of Erin's interview, it will be available as a podcast tomorrow morning on our website, 957benfm.com. Thanks so much for joining me today. I'm Kathy Romano. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. This has been Her Story with Kathy Romano. Her Story is produced by WBEN-FM in Philadelphia and airs weekly or on demand on your mobile device. Listen or subscribe at 957benfm.com.